patrons, welcome to an Alpha Bunga Bunga Reading Club. It's the Friday, the 29th of January, and we're discussing Brexit, specifically the book Richard Tuck's uh, The Left Case for Brexit. And the immediate question, I think, prompted by this before I even introduce George and Phil is who cares? Who cares about Brexit? It's a done deal. Um, it, the deals have been signed, it's done, uh, maybe not entirely satisfactory for any of the parties really other than the Tories. Um, but you know, it's done and you move on and you go back to politics as usual. Um, and that's just from a British perspective for anybody else. You're thinking, I mean, does it matter? Is there anything to really learn from this? And maybe even, you know, from a even more radical perspective, you're thinking, well, who cares about rich countries and their national sovereignty versus the EU. Um, it's imperialist Britain in a sort of imperialist EU or outside of it. Um, what difference does it make? And why should why should you care about national sovereignty? Yeah, effectively national sovereignty of uh, rich uh, imperialist countries. Um, you know, what's what's uh, why bother? Why bother discussing this? Um, and I don't have an answer for that. Um, so I'm going to pass over to George to introduce it. Uh, introduce the book um, and then introduce the topics that we're going to discuss. Yeah, I'm sure we'll come back to that point about why bother um, at some point if we're not just nostalgic for post-politics to go back to that that era before 2016 where where nothing really happened. Um, so yeah, so today's today's book, The Left Case for Brexit by Richard Tuck. So Richard is Professor of Government at Harvard. Um, he's an expert on Hobbes and sovereignty um, and has written a very good book on free riding as well. Um, so Wait, what's free riding? Free riding, um, it's when you don't pay. It's like um, when there is such thing as a free lunch, like you are uh, on the bus that's already going there, so you just hop on. Oh, I thought it was like not there. using protection. Okay, I, I, that's something else. Okay, go on. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I don't know if he if he covers that towards the, the end of the book. It's been quite a few years since I read it. Um, so, yeah, so this book, um, The Left Case for Brexit, is um, composed of a series of essays, many of which uh, were published in The Full Brexit, which Richard calls the main organ of left wing Brexiteers. Um, and it's important just to say that they're not they haven't been revised. So their responses to what happened at various different points in time. Um, running from the first one in April 2016, so before the referendum, to October 2019. Um, and so they give you um, a diary of Brexit, if you will, um, a variety of, of insights into what was happening in the practical uh, process. So I, I think that's actually, just to chip in, um, I think that's actually one of the great advantages of the book is that you have the... Um, you have these slices of particular moments and you get a sense of um, the bitterness um, and the stop and start character of so much of the struggle over Brexit. You get a sense, in fact, that it was indeed a genuine struggle, um, a back and forth, not only kind of between clashes and debates um, in various um you know, various um, places where Richard published some of the essays, but also in Parliament, because a lot of the essays that Richard writes are also accounts of what's happening in Parliament. And he makes the point that part of the um, intensity of his interventions and the debate itself is part of the restoration of democratic politics in the UK, so that it's appropriate that you have the um, the character of, the, um, of these political debates. And what's particularly interesting, I think, is how his views harden over the course of the book in response to changing circumstances. And I think that's also a lesson 
of um, a less a good kind of a good uh, advantage of the book. Yeah, no, I, and it's amazing, as you say, like how long winded it was and reading it in 2021, you're like, I can't believe how long this has been going on. Uh, and how, you know, you, you, I can remember back to following these debates in 2017, you know, or when Corbyn had the breakthrough in the election and, and thinking like how far that still was from the eventual, you know, final signing of the agreements and crossing the D, T, crossing the D's, crossing the T's and dotting the I's and so on. Yeah, no, I think, I think both of those points really um, come through and you can see how the context develops just by looking at the title of some of the essays not all the essays are titled um but some um of them are so and i'll just run through these um before maybe we can have a look at a bit of the context and also um i guess get into the substantive discussion but you have one from june 2016 before the referendum the left case for brexit which gives the book its title obviously july 2017 brexit a prize in reach for the left then it becomes a bit a bit less positive um April 2018, why is everybody so everyone so hysterical about Brexit? And then more specific questions about the multinational British state get introduced. July 2018, how to break up the union. November 2018, the surprising benefits to Ireland of a no-deal Brexit. And then back to the main um, questions. January 2019, deal or no deal. And April 2019, modest proposals. Um, so... A bit of context just for for listeners who um, might ha- need a refresher, might have uh, <clears throat> um, I don't know had had enough Brexit at that point in time, and um, now are eagerly returning to some of these questions. So you may or may not recall on twenty third of June, twenty sixteen. That was before this podcast started. So, but it did happen. It was in recorded history. Twenty um, third of June, twenty sixteen referendum on Britain's membership in the EU was held and on a turnout of 72.2%, 51.9% voted to leave and 48.1% to remain. Uh, In terms of regions, England outside of London voted by 242 districts to 52 to leave and Wales by 17 districts to five. London, on the other hand, voted 28 to five for remain and all Scottish districts voted to remain. These things come through obviously picked up in in the essays, some of the the splits. Um, And although districts don't map exactly onto parliamentary constituencies, it's estimated that 64% of Labour constituencies and 75, depending on various assumptions, of Tory constituencies voted to leave. So another split, and one that arguably proved to be the most important, was that an estimated 64% of constituencies overall voted leave, but only 159 out of 650 MPs did the same. So a big divide. Okay. So analysis is just to move move through these. Analysis has also suggested that voting leave was correlated with low income. 64% of those in those in those in the marketing category, C2DE, which sometimes called working class, voted leave, and even more so with educational inequality. So other things being equal. Uh, support for leave was 30 percentage points higher amongst those with GCSEs. So those are general certificate of secondary education, i.e. exams you do at 16. So 30 percentage points higher amongst those with GCSEs um, than uh, or below than those with a degree. So in terms of the reasons why uh, let me just jump, can I just jump in on yeah. something on that, which is interesting yeah. and, and often um, forgotten. 
there's there was this thing with the whole debate about Brexit and Remainers always threw this at Leavers that it was a bunch of old people that who wouldn't have to deal with the consequences of uh, of their actions, um, which of course, like I don't think is a legitimate point to make, but um, because you know older people have as much right to the franchise and a voice as as young people do, um, and indeed exercise theirs with more frequency. So, um, but the but the point about educational level, so you know as as George just said, like 30 percent, 30 percentage points more likely to vote leave if um, you've got uh, your kind of high school diploma. Um, that that also cor- that correlates with age, of course, because more and more people are more educated, you know, as you go forward in time in, in younger yeah. and younger cohorts. So that's part of the reason as well that older people um, voted more for leave is also because it correlates with uh, lower education. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not to get too much into the political science but the that educational inequality um other things being equal means you control for age so it's even it's a really striking oh even um, controlling for age okay sorry yeah 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 so it's like yeah i mean it it, i think all the age point is is a good one as well and these things came to play themselves out in various different culture wars um elements of the discussion but um yeah so just i guess finally uh, in terms of reasons for voting one way or another, although endless debates are possible and indeed uh, proved themselves uh, to be um, had, exit polls suggested that for those who voted leave, the major concern was, quote, the principle that decisions about the UK should be taken in the UK. 49% of people gave that. While the major concern for those voting remain was, quote, the risk of jobs uh, sorry, the risks of voting to leave the EU looked too great when it came to things like the economy, jobs and prices. And that was 43% um, gave that as their number one reason for voting remain. So basically, in other words, I mean, you could sum, you could sum that up as like kind of wanting control versus uh, risk averse, right? You, you could do. I mean, that's one way to do it. Um, and I think we can get we can get into that. But I thought it was just interesting. It's just worth putting putting it out there that it was not um, exclusively, as it has been obviously portrayed, a kind of uh, Britain as a global force for Remain or or draw up the drawbridge for for Leave. It was obviously a lot more complicated than that. There is um, there is one more element, if I can, about education, which I think is worth making. The- yeah, go ahead. You're you're, you're- educated you can you can speak in this debate well thank you very much epistocracy i'm glad epistocracy no i'm the insurgent in fact you oh yeah the, uni- the university lecturer is the insurgent interesting you're literally <laughs> calling from your office with all of your books behind you but go ahead mr um mr anti-knowledge man um so one of the debates about this is always that um, one of the claims that's made in the new kind of um um kind of the political science splicing is that education matters more than class um because uh, the lack of education correlates most strongly with um support of populism support of brexit and being educated you know is um kind of for having the more qualifications you have particularly university and um high school education the more likely you are to be anti-populist and in this case um pro-eu and um 
I think what that overlooks is that these that this in turn the kind of the role that education plays in particularly in post Blairite society in the UK itself reflects prior choices made about class and I think that's also important to stress so even though the you know in terms of the patterns and the voting behavior education always is the most kind of standout phenomenon and the one that people kind of glom onto as the most expl um, powerful explanatory factor with respect to the European Union um, that seems to crowd out the kind of the um, the class dimension to some degree it also reflects um, prior kind of decisions about class and particularly the decision you know the um, the attempt particularly by um, new labor governments um, and that were inherited by subsequent governments to shape a very particular kind of vision of society that would get away from the previous class divisions of British society that would um, everyone would effectively be socialized through university and that would be part of adapting to a new knowledge economy where um, kind of intangible skills mattered much more to people than say um, vocational training or um, the kind of training that you receive on the job and that eventually everyone would be effectively an office worker everyone would be white collar everyone would go to university everyone would be have the same kinds of views um, and so that attempt um, to shape that kind of society was itself a product of a particular kind of um, of class politics a particular kind of political economy um, that has I mean, importantly, failed as well, failed to deliver in terms of productivity, failed to deliver in terms of the promises that it made about improving Britain's growth model, about transforming Britain's um, political economy and society, not least because so much of it was still dependent on low wage immigrant labor from the European Union, um, not only to, um, you know, not only to kind of um, do um, service sector jobs, but also to do food processing and agriculture in Britain. Anyway, so I only want to put that in perspective with respect to some of the kind of um, political science splicing and dicing of the voting patterns. Um, the fact that education stands out so sharply still needs to be contextualized in a wider mm. picture of Britain's class relations and political economy that is itself yeah. an artifact of previous political decisions. Yeah, I guess, I guess Richard doesn't engage in those kind of specific arguments or all, all that much this is all almost all the 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 background um <clears throat> which i guess the the essays then build off of because one thing that he's particularly interested in as you know we alluded to earlier is some of the you know some of the practical political debates so it, particularly in parliament and some of the i guess as a political historian it's it's um his skill and his his training and his expertise to bring out some of the histories of some of the concepts that people are are using. So he doesn't go too much in for the um, the regression analyses that are definitely possible on 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 ex essentially explaining the vote and explaining away the vote. You might even even say, but to kind of move on to the more substantive topics, who, as Alex said at the beginning, who who cares? This one, it's over. Two, it's parochial. Brexit. Can't we find something more interesting to talk about on a Friday evening? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, that's sorry, a long let, question. Let me, let me rephrase that. That's it's not about us not having anything interesting to talk about. Why should anybody bother to talk about about Brexit on a so Friday th evening or uh, any day of the week uh, in 2021? 
So I think this is one of the really strong points of Richard's book is not only is it kind of very tightly bound to the um, the shifts, reversals, um, kind of um, dramatic, um, you know, dramatic forward strides in, in the debate over those four years, but it's also being uh, an American. I mean, obviously, um, Richard is um, British, but he's also American and he's based in America. Um, he's an American political theorist at Harvard. Um, and what's interesting about that is that he always consistently relates it to U.S. debates, particularly to do with the U.S. He always makes the comparison. And a lot of yeah. the conversation is, in fact, directed towards colleagues and peers in the U.S. And he consistently relates it to debates about NAFTA about the US's integration into NAFTA and into various the various trans um, trans-Pacific um, free trade agreements that were all kind of being engineered um, uh, prior to the Trump administration. Mm. And so I think what comes across very strongly in Richard's book, and this is why it's such a good book to convey the politics of Brexit to a wider audience beyond the UK, is that it's the first in the post-Cold War era, it's the first major um, political moment where questions of popular sovereignty have been pitched against supranational arrangements for globalization. Um, so it's the, it's the sharpest kind of conflict between different principles of national and political organization. And for, you know, a variety of um, fairly contingent reasons that happened that happened to occur in Britain rather than in any other place in the developed mm. world, at least. Yeah. I, I, so I think that's really important because um, those are in some ways single most important political and economic debates of our times is the integration into these vast um, trading arrangements where so much of um, our political and economic choices are restricted. And this is the clash, I think, that Brexit, that makes Brexit so important for um, effectively for everyone around the world. And, and I think a lot of people during the whole process and reading the book kind of brought this home in a way, um, albeit in a kind of negative sense, because it's not what Richard does, but it's what he leaves unsaid, um, is that at that time, uh, most of the debate didn't engage with that, didn't, it, there wasn't clarity, I mean, amongst a lot of the participants or even observers, that this was a real fundamental de debate about sovereignty in a kind of globalized world. Um, yeah. or, or, or to the extent that it was, it was dismissed as like, you can't have sovereignty in a globalized world. So stop complaining yeah. as it were you can't um, have you can't yeah. have popular democratic yeah. self-rule and self-government and so the case that richard makes very powerfully is that the eu is a variant of the trans um, trans-pacific trading arrangements and the regional trading arrangements in north america such as nafta it's a very particular variant of these larger global structures um that restrict um kind of popular self-government throughout the world and, and this yeah. is what makes it i think such an effective um, book for understanding the wider implications and stakes of Brexit. So in answer to Alex's challenge at the beginning, um, you know, how Brexit is not parochial in that sense. And this is what comes across in Richard's book. So just just a couple of points. I think we'll return to these in a little bit later as well. But two things which came through on this kind of um, from the American perspective on Brexit that Richard really draws out. One is the, the role of constitutions um, that kind of perennial American concern um, and how this applies to uh, to Brexit. And the other is the role of the Supreme Court 
Um, and obviously this again is another um, uh, hallowed American institution and seeing how this, the relationship between parliament um, and the judiciary is one of the things that he explores. Um, and all of these things are counterposed to a lot of the other analysis at this point in time, um, which was about English identity, about culture wars issues, about kind of, um, you know, a lot of a lot of ideological um, froth, you might say, rather than some of the key questions of political structures. So I think really cuts through all that stuff really, really well. Um, but yeah, before we move on to some of the specific themes, uh, anything kind of taking these essays as a whole, anything that, that either of you have that's, you know, worth saying on some of the developments across the essays, we've already talked about the hardening of some of the, the positions um, or the, the project as a whole. I mean, I, I, I think the only thing I would say, and maybe it's also useful for listeners who maybe haven't had read the book, but are listening to this anyway. And I guess we always try to endeavor to make it still accessible, even if you haven't read the book as a whole or whatever, if you only managed to read some parts, um, which is that he, the, in relation also to what Phil was just saying in terms of relating it to American debates is the way that Richard tries to, one, endear his case to um, an American audience, or maybe rather put it differently, to a left-wing audience, wherever you may be, by pointing out that why is there no British Bernie and pointing out that Corbyn was not exactly a, a, a British Bernie, um, because Bernie specifically targeted things like the TPP, the NAFTA, and so on, um, which it, the British left kind of shied away from and pointed out as the, the kind of homology, though the similarity between um, the EU as not just a trading agreement, but as something which locks in certain policies, um, prevents certain policies from, from being enacted, um, you know, and, and has this whole judicial system which prevents uh, any real challenge to it, um, which, you know, people will be familiar with the debate around the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, where that was also a, a major issue of complaint because it wasn't just a trade agreement about lowering tariffs a certain amount or whatever, um, about allowing or not allowing certain imports, but was about things like um, investor state disputes where uh, basically, big corporations can sue a state for not for for mm. not allowing it to um, to to uh, do its business in 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 its country, um, which obviously is uh, really anti democratic. Should be inimical to any left project, and that was very obvious for Sanders, very obvious for a lot of the American left, um, but that was not clear for the British left, I think, in, in many cases in discussion yeah. with the, about the EU. And in many cases, it wasn't even clear about Americans discussing Brexit. Because, I mean, it's worth recalling that yeah. many Americans were, some some were like, why do you care about the EU? Yeah, cool, leave. What's the problem? Others, I think, took the attitude like, no, this is horrible. This is just nationalist, whatever. This is just like Trump and Britain, etc. Um, you can see the hostility which um, reached, which um, responded to Alex Gurevich's article in Jacobin a couple of years ago when he made the case for Brexit there. I remember that kind of um, striking me because I was like, wow, all these Americans care about, you know, Britain and the EU. Why, why do they have such a strong position on this? It is. So, I mean, I mean, so Richard makes this point very effectively about the European Court of Justice is locks in the, um, the capacity for corporations, companies, to, um, to take states to court. And indeed they have. I mean, this is one of the points he makes is um, just how neoliberal, consistently pro-capital and anti-labor the court has been in its um, in its verdicts and rules. 
rules and also the factors to how it um, can't be checked. There's no countervailing agency or body with respect to the European Court of Justice in the EU. I mean, so the peculiar, I mean, this is the peculiar thing about the European Union. It is like this um, this uh, grand trading block like TTIP or NAFTA, whatever, um, but it has a romance attached to it that these others didn't. And that, I think, is still one of the kind of abiding puzzles of the European Union, is the tremendous, the way in which it's um, veiled with all this um, ideological... Um, um, it's got good branding, basically. And as, as uh, Wolfgang Strake puts it, it's been sacralized. The, the idea of yeah. Europe and the European Union have been put together and it's got a really strong There is no other component. trading, yeah, there is no other trading arrangement um, which is as sacralized, as has the romantic air that the European Union has. And that is something... But, but, but also, part, also partly because some of it's the, the people, major movers in the, the founding, the creation, the development of the European Union had grander dreams about it then were actually realized. I mean, the, the EU itself underwent, I guess, a more neoliberal turn. It, um, it's not, uh, it was not a foregone conclusion that it would end up what it was. Um, so, and, and, you know, for understandable reason, and some of the ideological um, icing on the EU cake is stuff that is on, on you know, on surface level appealing. Um, so it's something that has to be grappled with. And in, in, indeed, we have to kind of chip off that icing to really get to what the, the reality of the of the cake is and it's a cake made of shit so <laughs> that's a pretty uh, that, that's that's pretty straightforward <laughs> yeah it's a shit cake with it's i'm assuming that's hard icing the, it's yeah, hard icing it's hard away. icing yeah 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 okay um so to move if that cake is the like the the starter to move on to the main course which is not shit cake <laughs> it's this, this Exactly. Yeah. So um, the specific, some of the specific themes, I think compared to some of the other books that we've done in the reading club, because this isn't a single work, it's a collection of essays. You see some of these themes develop with variations and through kind of repetition and iteration. So it's quite an, it's quite an interesting read just to see, to see that happen. And I think one of the major pleasures of this book is seeing a historian of political thought who is intimidatingly well-read, even if his writing requires rather fewer uses of the, of the thesaurus than Perry Anderson's does, um, apply some of the concepts of his discipline to a situation that really wasn't clear to most observers. For some of the reasons we've discussed, I think a lot of the ideological and cultural points came to overshadow some of the kind of key questions of political structures. And so I picked out three themes that I think are particularly interesting. Um, the first of which democracy and political authority, this obviously comes through again and again. The second is this point about constitutions. And the third is, uh, and I think these come towards the end when we're really getting to the cut and thrust of the matter, class strategies and political analysis. They're all quite broad, um, but then again, it's a wide ranging book. so. Um, that's to be expected. So yeah, the first, um, and so this, I think, particularly for, for listeners who've who've read the book, um, this first um, essay or first uh, illustration of the idea of of democracy comes through in this um, essay of the sixth of November, twenty seventeen. And I think this is a really great essay for a number of reasons, um, and it formed the basis of a lecture that Richard gave at 
some London university, UCL or KCL on active and passive citizens that I thought was really fantastic. Um, anyhow, this essay, yeah, I, I think it first, it captures the left's desire to help fellow citizens rather than talk about power. Richard uh, references Hillary Clinton um, saying that she was in the presidential race to make life better for children and families. Um, and it includes the killer line that this sort of politician, which you could say is characteristic of the modern left, sees the state as, quote, the armed wing of Oxfam, unquote, which I think is, he actually takes that from somewhere else, but it's a great, it's a great line. Um, and second, um, it starts to link some of the material changes um, underlying, you know, the, the, the second half, particularly of the 20th century in British society, um, things like changes in industrial organization and political structures, such as um, standing armies being demobilized to some of the changes in political ideas and particularly around decreasing support for democracy or more a movement from one understanding of democracy to another a kind of, you could say, a, a, a pro-social one of democracy as popular sovereignty um, to a more technocratic one democracy as rules, checks and balances, um, and actually uses, uh, draws on some interesting, interesting stats that there's a big divide between those born in the 30s and those born in the 80s in terms of how essential they think it is to live in a democracy, with 75% of those born in the 30s thinking it is, and only 25% of those born in the 80s, um, and that's drawing on a study by Yasha Monk, I think, I can't, yeah, and um Roberto Stefan Foa at Harvard. So yeah, we, we are the twenty five percent. Yeah, well, we we'd hope so. Um, so yeah, what do we what do we take of or what do we make of this kind of reflection of Richards on the crisis of, of democracy? I think I mean the armed wing of Oxfam is brilliant, and I just want to stress it because its brilliance actually didn't occur to me initially until later. Um, because when I heard it the first time, I you know thought of it in terms of my area of um, disciplinary expertise as an employed academic, which is international relations. So I understood it in terms of humanitarian intervention, right? Bombing, um, you know, kind of uh, that the U.S. and Western states bomb countries to bring them human rights and um, that they drop aid parcels or bombs, ultimately, it doesn't really matter. But in the context of Brexit, actually, it only later occurred to me that Richard meant it in respect of internally um, within Britain itself and Hillary's attitude towards um, her fellow citizens. That what's really being said is that they view um, the state as a... Um, as kind of uh, as a humanitarian enterprise, as something which is capable of um, providing people with various kinds of material benefits, improving their lives, but that has no connection to a vision of self-government or citizenship, or the idea that those people that the state is supposed to be helping have any have any capacity or power to shape their own circumstances and to impose their will on government and on the people making those kinds of claims. Mm. Um, so where I just to stress, I think the point, the whole point of, um, of uh, Richard connecting the idea of state power and state force to, um, to this kind of world renowned British charity was to make a point about domestic politics, not about international politics. Got there in the end, Phil. Um, no, I think the um, one of the really striking things and which I think is almost at the heart of 
the whole Brexit debate, and this is a, a point that Pete Ramsey um, has made that I have um, used on many occasions, and because I, th I think it's just so good, is that the left has essentially moved from seeing the working class as a subject of of politics to the object of politics. So the object of politics, i.e., recipient of charity, um, material benefits to various sorts, and not as the collective or individual actors who make decisions. Um, and so that armed wing of Oxfam is exactly it, that you have <clears throat> a paternalistic or a kind of charitable approach rather than one that says what is democracy is for decision making. It's not uh, instrumentally valuable. It's intrinsically valuable. Um, that shift played itself out really, I think, very clearly in the left's response to the left case for Brexit, which we'll get on to in, in a bit. Alex, anything I mean, I, democracy, I, I mean, for I just, or against? Yeah, um, for a crisis, I suppose. Always for a crisis and for democracy. So, I, you know, uh, I, I, the one thing I would add about that, I think, is that, I mean, on the one hand, obviously, it's, you know, it's good that you, uh, the state might help people or that you might have a sense of community, which, um, you know, cares for the most vulnerable and so on. I, I don't think anybody um, would object to that. And so we're obviously not excluding that. It's not a it's, it shouldn't be a trade-off between care and power, um, rather that it's only through power that you get care. Uh, that's maybe a kind of a, a ham-fisted way of putting it. But the, the point is that how could you rely on a Hillary Clinton, for example, um, to provide you with uh, with the things you need for for your life to make to to have you know a flourishing life or you know to be um, in charge of your own conditions of life and so on, uh, that's just not going to happen. So whatever whatever she might say in her rhetoric that her aim is to make life better for children and families, that's not going to be realized without without power. Um, and I think with it, with relation to the EU debate, I think that applies even more so because I, I'm not you know the kind of Brexit here left Brexiteer vision, I guess, was that um, the state should just be this nice, effectively this nice figure, this, this nice mother figure um, who takes care of people. Um, and we should have conciliation and consensus. And that's why the EU and the way that it does its business, which is has mm. to be always through consensus and whatever, um, and where nothing ever really changes because you need, um, you know, the consensus of, of 27 different states to really change anything, um, kind of appeals um, because it's this sort of yeah. stasis. But when, but the really imaginary part is that the state could ever, you know, in, to put it in, in, in the most basic terms, kind of care for you, um, because why would it? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's worth it's worth flagging that this, um, I guess, this whole debate, not we started it, obviously we didn't, but we have touched on it previously. So in June 2018, episode 40, it's a, a classic from the from the archive. We was we spoke with David Adler about his research into uh, the centrists of the bad guys, which showed that essentially support for democracy was lowest amongst those who would put themselves at the center of the political spectrum. So I think that yeah, even work. even the right even the right was more pro democracy than the center, let alone the left. Yeah, um, and it's worth thinking about how that has proved itself to be true again and again. Um, in support, in support for the European Union, no less as well. Yeah. yeah. So. In so just maybe to move actually on to the second theme, that of constitutions. Um, these are all my themes. You won't see these uh, 
it, the book thematically divided in this um, way. So what I think is is quite striking is the constitutional view of the EU that Richards develops or um, explains very, very clearly. So there's an, an essay from the 28th of, uh, 26th of April, 2018, um, where Richard frames the EU as a constitutional order for each member state taken separately. The idea here being that it's not some sort of um, super state, which is coming over here to straighten our bananas and tell us um, what to do. Um, but in fact, it's it's best understood as a interlocking legal framework, which each member state um, agrees to in a, in a separate way. So what do we make of this? Is this a useful way to understand the EU? Is it politically generative? I mean, yeah, I think I think it's it's very good. Um, and I would relate it also to the episode we had with Quinn Slobodin and actually touched on this in the last reading club, uh, reading Richard, um, reading Wolfgang Strick's recent book about the EU being a sort of economic constitution. And I think that's a good way to think about it. And if, I think as soon as you think about it that way, I don't think any left-wing person could then be um, sympathetic to it. Yeah, I think it also throws open the question of what is a, what is a constitution? It's a political compromise between classes at a specific point in time um, and I think it's important to um, for a whole range of reasons to be very skeptical of the the benefit of constitutions they lock in certain ways of doing things certain rules they ad advance given trends um, and then th there is a uh, I think one of the things that Richard essentially celebrates or sees a potential in, sorry, not really celebrate, sees a potential in is, you know, what is what are the political alternatives, the political options open to Britain, given the lack of constraint from a written constitution? Um, and this, I think, is an important part of his, of the project that he would see realised and why he uh, defends Brexit as a, a potential stage in that, in that project. And again, um, I mean... He, well, it's only to say there's a constant comparison with U.S. politics um, and all the pathologies that come with um, kind of constitutional fetishism in the U.S., the rigidity, the difficulty of changing the Constitution, um, the way in which that has locked in certain kind of um, uh, difficulties in U.S. political life, um, the way in which so much U.S. political life organizes around control of the Supreme Court, um, the least majoritarian um, institution of the American state. And so he says all of this is kind of replicated in an even worse way with the European Union. Um, and I think that's, um, that's because it's even more difficult to change the EU's constitutional structure because you need a higher level of coordination between all the member states um, who aren't ultimately even kind of uh, members of a single political union, which at least you can say about the US. Um, so I think that also is constantly the comparisons, uh, the, the constant parallel with the US is also a very important aspect of um, the kind of insights provided in Richard's book. And that also push it past the boundaries of just being a, just being a book about British politics. I, I think there's also a thing just to add that Richard's book brings up, which I, you know, I glaze over when people start talking about constitutions, um, about mm -hmm. these institutional structures and uh, methods of uh, voting and whatever, like it's 
just absolute snoozathon. Um, but what Richard's book brought home and what he lays out very clearly is the degree to which Britain is such a particular beast in that it never underwent the constitutionalization, I guess, that France, that, that the US did, and, and which in, in those cases were very much done in, in sort of with an anti-democratic, anti-popular aim in mind. And Britain never totally came to that. So what you have is a House of Commons, at least, which has much greater room for maneuver than than other than other representative bodies like not you know um and and you know sovereign bodies um despite the the, the kind of all the kind of feudal encumberments of 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 you know queen and house of lords and all the rest um and th- th- this idea which is often repeated and i don't know if you if you don't live in britain maybe you've never heard this but you know this idea oh britain doesn't have a written constitution um the, the book explains how in fact it's a sequence of of acts and laws that have been passed which actually do form a written constitution but they are just passed as ordinary laws rather than as um, as, a, as a as a constitution writing, which has a you know a kind of general assembly to write it, and the amendments to it aren't carried out through the need for a supermajority and so on in the way that um, you know you would have in France or or the U.S. or any of the other constitutions which have modeled themselves on those original kind of uh, bourgeois republics. And no constitutional courts, at least until recently, that the yeah. British Supreme Court seems to be adopting a role for itself like that. But that this was the advantage of the old model of British politics was the absence of these um, unelected bodies that can effectively constrain popular will and elected representatives. Um, and all of this has effectively been lost by Britain's membership, or was lost at least, and by Britain's membership of the US, which is, um, which, um, is why it's so good that we're out. So just to pick up on on Alex's point about the, <clears throat> I guess, the, the dryness of, of talking about constitutions or that kind of that institutional approach to politics. I think this is one of the things that, um, I don't know, actually probably was the best thing about reading this book was me realizing probably very belatedly that these um, legal structures and kind of the the way in which um, democracy is encased or, or the, the economy is encased and um, protected, uh, the economy protected from democratic intervention. This is like, like we talked about this with, as you said, with when we talked about the Strake book, but this is like, this is the task at the moment in one sense. Like we've, we spent a long time in the, the end of history period, like wondering about mobilization and thinking about, you know, where were these political, new political actors going to come from? And actually all this time, the distance between majoritarian political institutions and particularly economic um, processes and economic structures just was growing and growing and growing. And I think the, this is when Richard talks about the constitutionalizing of British politics. This is exactly what he's, what he's um, referencing is how these kind of interlocking series of memberships of various agreements and various um, contracts essentially is a ways in which to stop um, political contestation of important economic things, of of various different things, but particularly economics. Um, And that it's not in fact dry and uh, even tedious to talk about these things, but it's gets right at the heart of what the political structures are that we're, we're dealing with. We just haven't been able to see them for quite a while because they've been, so all pervasive, and that has been the the direction and the manner of of government of um, of post political 
neoliberals across across Europe and including in the UK. Um, so um, on to the, the third theme, um, which, as I said, I think comes through towards the end um, of the book. So this this uh, essay from the 31st of October 2019, which kind of concludes and wraps up um, the book. Uh, so Richard's quite clear here in seeing the EU as a kind of proxy in a culture war. Um, that you know this is something onto which various identities have been projected in various um um i guess kind of domestic political conflicts have been have been projected and externalized so and then he kind of moves through this analysis and ends up um quoting marx on on the chartists and saying that they and that marx praised the chartists precise for, for precisely not refusing to ally with their class enemies. So his, his reading is essentially that there is something really valuable um, to be gained from this kind of class alliance. Um, what did you guys make of perhaps this, um, this analysis or this, like, this approach or suggestion as to what the, the left, if you have the, less ca the left case for Brexit being an intellectual one, the left um, driving through of Brexit, what that could have been? Um, you should tell us who the Chartists are before anything else. So the Chartists um, were British working class um, campaigners who advocated. They had six demands, which I can't remember off the top of my head, although I, I should do. Um, and so this was kind of mid, early, mid um, 19th century. So often looked back on as one of the sort of early um, working class movements and their demands were all around how to achieve a sort of political equality. They wanted to um, have various changes, including, as, as Richard mentions, um, very memorably in Felix Holt, the book by George Eliot, you see what happens if you have um, not, not private voting. It's a, it's, a, it's a free for all. And one of the Chartist demands was, um, was against this. So yeah, so he's he's going back to early um, working class movements and saying um, saying what they're what they're demanding. The I mean, Brexit you, process. You, you, you did have that though. Um, I mean, you had you, you had the the former communists setting up Charter eighty eight, I believe, right? Which it was an yeah. organization which is kind of pro democratic reform organization by ex communists. So I mean, the, the the Chartists have been used and reappropriated by different groups over over history. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was the the kind of one of the pathetic attempts to revive British Stalinism in the aftermath of the Cold War, and it was very um, Charter eighty eight was kind of very lame. I mean, I think one of their one of their aims, if I recall correctly, was in fact to have a written constitution, um, and um, it was kind of the left wing of Blairism. They wanted uh, the human, you know, they wanted kind of human rights and inst institutionalized in a constitutional document. Um, but it's, um, I mean, the broader point about the Chartists is political enfranchisement. They wanted, um, they wanted to expand British democracy by um, abolishing the limits on the franchise, the property limits on the franchise, and expanding it to to have universal male suffrage, to incorporate the working class into um, into the into the nation. In fact, um, as Marx said, to um, 
to that the working class must constitute itself the nation in the Communist Manifesto, and that was the aim of the Chartists. And um, I, I guess why Engels, Marx's collaborator, called the Chartists the first first modern proletarian party. Um, and I think it's right to put it in that context because essentially the question of Brexit was a question of enfranchisement, though we all have. Um, we all have the vote, women um, as well as men, and propertyed as well as unpropertyed. Um, the um, the point of the constitutionalization undertaken by the European Union and neoliberalism has been to make the vote meaningless. Um, and in the case of the debates over Brexit, to even try to overturn the outcome of the referendum to reverse it um, and to take us back into the European Union. So the debate over enfranchisement um, and rooting it in that debate, I think, is um, is um, exactly the right context in which to understand it. So that, that's well put. I want to draw something else from the uh, from the from the citing of Marx on the Chartists in the book, which is uh, to George's point, to George's question, which is, um, you know, how does that get us beyond? culture war. And I think it's interesting because the, the thing that he cites, so Marx uh, refers to um, the opposition to the corn laws amongst the Tories and that um, effectively the workers sided with the free traders against the Tories. And that was a sort of tactical alliance of siding with your enemy um, so that you might then have another battle, a, a, a better, a, a later battle and a better battle on kind of uh, more democratic grounds, um, ones that might be more propitious to you. And that's the analogy with Brexit, that left-wingers should have supported Brexit at all costs so that you might then fight the, the, the class enemy, right? So you, you take away the, all the restrictions on democracy that the EU brings in. That doesn't mean that it's the end of the game and that everything's settled and that we live in a you know this post-Brexit utopia, um, but that, you, that that's that's a better platform for for a struggle later on. And that was something which is really absent from I think from from a lot of uh, left wing uh, left wing attitudes to Brexit. You know, with some with some good with some good notable exceptions, but but in a large swathe, um, there was a, a kind of you know kind of I think a prickliness about. Um, or, you know, or shyness about in any way being associated with what they saw as a right-wing case for Brexit and that the right-wing case could be was was indelibly linked with Brexit itself, that there was, yeah. that there could be, that there could be no tearing away for that. And it's interesting, just, just one thing I asked on Twitter, like um, at the beginning of the month, just because I was thinking not so much about Brexit, but about the U.S. presidential election and just kind of the U.S. culture wars. Was that it? Was there a, it, could anybody think of a good example of the left backing the greater evil and backing the greater evil in a tactical calculation um, to, to 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 have to pursue certain ends? Which for me, like it, it, I wasn't being provocative, but for me, it's a mark of political maturity and sense of political independence and autonomy that you, you know, as as the left or as the working class, decide to ally with someone who isn't who who is quite far away from you in your politics. Um, to to achieve certain ends, which then so that you might then be able to struggle better in the future, um, which the left very much doesn't do today, right? It'll it'll often side with the lesser, what it sees as the lesser evil, um, which often creates worse conditions for struggle in the future. Um, so this isn't I'm not making an accelerationist point that you should support you know the worst capitalist forces to make things worse, not at all. It's just about supporting those elements which are most democratizing or might provide 
better democratic grounds for for struggle in the future. And I think and I think that sort of tactical strategic thinking um, with a degree of independence and autonomy is something that's very often lacking today because it gets instead drawn into this culture war. Whose side are you on? What type of person are you? And that happened very much in the in the EU debate. The left wants to be internationalist, therefore it sides with the worst kind of free marketeer, the, not for free market, maybe the worst kind of sort of. Um, yeah, technocratic cosmopolitans, because they're seen more as their type of people, rather than really analyzing the lay of the land and the the, the conflicting parties and saying, okay, what horse should be back here so that we can have more democracy, so that we can fight better another day. Great. So I guess onto the, the wider implications. Um, or some of the, you know, some of the wider discussions and debates around the left case for Brexit, um, both in this book and and more widely. So the first one, and, and Richard does note this, and he he has his his account, but and it's it's very striking that essentially the left and the right effectively swapped places over the EU um, since the mid nineteen eighties. Why? I mean, is this is this. Uh, is this an interesting thing to reflect on or is this just a quirk of political history? I think it, I mean, it, it, it's interesting and particularly interesting in Britain. And I think the, you know, there's he, so um, Richard attributes it essentially to once the, um, he, well, he attributes it to a few things. So you have the split in the 1983 election when the social democratic um, party tries to establish itself independent of the Labour Party. It splits the Labour Party vote. Um, and is part of um, what explains Margaret Thatcher's enormous majority in 1983, parliamentary majority. Um, and that was over Europe because you had the the right wing of the Labour Party um, didn't want to be associated with the Eurosceptic wing of the Labour Party, which stood on an anti, on a withdrawal from the European Economic Community as it was back then. Um, and then later, once um, Britain's membership is firmly has been firmly locked in under Thatcher, you have the famous um, speech by Jacques Delors in the late 1980s, where he's um, he was one of the most charismatic and dynamic of the presidents of the EU Commission, and he deliberately tried to cultivate um, a constituency for the European, what was to become the European Union, um, by cultivating um, working class organizations, organized labor trade unions, particularly ones that had been in countries where they'd been beaten back. And that was his pitch to British trade unions. And it was at that moment that the left began to see um, the European Union or the EEC, as it still was then, as a kind of hinterland into which they could retreat um, after having been so thoroughly routed by Thatcher domestically. They felt that they could draw on support from what was provided at the European level, and that was deliberately mm-hmm. cultivated by Jacques Delors and made um, and made Thatcher more skeptical of the European Union. I think, I mean, I think it's more complicated than just that, and I think it's more deeply rooted and goes back, in fact, all the way to um, to Britain's role in the Second World War um, and perhaps beyond that too. So I think the um, but. Um, the basic, you know, the story of the 1980s and so far as they swap around, a lot of it is to do with um, with shifting responses um, to the EEC and particularly the fact that the defeated left begins to see it as a crutch for its domestic failures. And I think that's yeah. um, that is the most important part of the story with respect to the left. I mean, I guess you could say, sorry, I, I just wanted to say that, I mean, it appears that both positions are irrational, I guess. 
um, or that they're so self-defeating because, you know, as, as we'll come to discuss what the left case for Brexit is, um, the left case for Remain uh, seems to be self-defeating. You know, if the left is true about what it wants, that that it uh, the, the remaining the EU would impede those. That I think is obvious. I mean, at least obvious to us, and and probably obvious to to many of our listeners. Um, the the right wing swap is maybe less talked about because it's seen as maybe self-evident because the right is nationalist and therefore it wants to pursue a nationalist project of, you know, it sees. The, the, it sees Brexit purely as a nationalist project of national independence um, rather than being about democracy. Um, but I'm not sure that entirely entirely satisfies it, or at any rate, it's also probably irrational in the sense of being you know, unable to, to realize its stated aims. So that if you want Britain to have a greater role in the world to be this global Britain and, and whatever, Kind of rhetoric that the right-wing Brexiteers use. It also wouldn't. It also would be best achieved within the EU. One because it would prevent um, any kind of major democrat democratizing reform, any kind of more thoroughgoing social democracy in Britain. Um, but also because uh, the EU, as a uh, rather Britain, as a as a much well relatively weaker power now in a, in a world of uh, of. The U.S. and rising China, it's it, it, Britain's aims are probably better pursued. I mean, Britain's Britain's national interest, as conceived by right wingers, are best realized through membership of the EU and NATO and all the rest. Would you agree yeah, with that? that? Well, there's it's just um, striking that this exact point was one of the reasons why the right engineered Britain's accession to the um, to the EU in the first place, or what became um, the EU. So the idea that we can punch above our weight, um, we can, um, you know, have a role in a in a post post imperial Britain can have a role in in the world. Um, that alongside the desire to neuter any future radical socialist policies through a confinement in a legal order of the market, and these things are, um, are it's surprising how they kind of echo. Um, onto kind of left-wing arguments for remain but instead of legal order of a market it's legal order of protections from from domestic um defeat and from from the tories it's one of the best parts of richard's book in fact is he digs up um from the archive some of the debates within the labor party when it was in government in the 1970s when britain first joined the um common market as it was then known the precursor of the eu and there's this astonishing where they're very, um, some of the mem- some of the de- participants in that debate are so astonishingly clear-sighted, where they see membership of the EEC as a way to maintain Britain's imperial role, East of Suez, as it was called, um, and also to maintain itself as a great power. And they saw the other option as not being in the EEC, as not being part of the European Union, was decline to the status of a greater Sweden was one of the words used that Richard has dug out from the some of his analysis of that period. I think it's just, it's a remarkable um, lucidity about the choices um, that were before the left at the time and the way that being part of the European Union or its precursors was opting for imperial status. It was opting for prolonging Britain's great power position. And that has been evident throughout the Brexit debate, the most consistent supporters of, Brit- of maintaining British power on the world stage, i.e. its imperial status, were those who supported membership of the European Union. No, I think that's, I think that's really well put. And I would agree that that kind of um, uh, 
political memory is 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 crucial and very interesting to read as well so just a final couple of questions um maybe we we should just approach this quite directly um and just just say that we've we've laid it out there specific explicitly what was the left case for brexit or is the left case for brexit in summary can we put a a kind of um um summarize that quickly and why was it include including richard's contribution so poorly received on the left the british left i mean i i think i'll let you guys say what you think the left case is for brexit because you guys have been very active over the past four years actively arguing for it um writing about it and so on um so i i think it might be worth saying what richard tuck's case for brexit is in the book at least you know i don't know him personally um and I haven't read much of what he's written, you know, and I might, I may have written, read some things on the full Brexit website, but, you know, I wasn't entirely aware of, of, of who he was and whatever. Um, so for me, it was coming at it afresh, reading the book to, to see what his left case is for Brexit, because I'm familiar with, you know, Cosas Lapafitsa's case, or I'm familiar with your guys's case, but, um, and indeed my own case, <laughs> but, um, but, the, but for him, I think it's most telling in his reference repeated throughout the book to the Attlee government and the way that it was able to create the NHS um, through the privatization without compensation um, of various hospitals, which were previously trusts, um, something that would be impossible in the EU today. Um, and it, it might even be impossible under the French constitution, something that he makes reference to um, as well. And to make a call back to our discussion um, a few minutes ago about constitutionalism um, and, and why we should be why we should be wary of, of, of these constitutions which lock in um, or prevent political decisions um, prevent political autonomy um, so I think Richard's case is really hinged on the possibility of a what was you know potentially a Corbyn government or some left government being able to uh, come in and have much greater freedom for maneuver I mean there's a principled case which is that Brexit offers all parties greater freedom of maneuver. It opens up political options. So yes, it, it allows the Tories perhaps to be able to pursue some dream of Singapore on Thames, of becoming this uh, free market, free trade, extremely low tax uh, sort of haven, um, you know, just a, a nexus for for the for kind of the, the circulation of, of global capital. Um, but it also opens up the possibility um, for a social democratic or I guess what's called nowadays democratic socialist politics. I don't know what democratic socialist means personally. It's either socialism or it's social democracy in my opinion, but that's maybe an aside. Um, but, you know, effectively, um, you know, Corbyn's full plan, full program, uh, you know, that that's what is... The, if not the maybe principled or abstract case, but is the practical case for Brexit, um, left-wing case for Brexit, um, as my that's at least my reading of what of what Richard Tuck's uh, writing is. I mean, I think more ambitious probably than I mean, harking back to the um, the nationalizations of the Atlee government, more ambitious than what Corbyn named for. Um, and he also goes into detail, for instance, about the um, the uh, nationalization of the railways, again, which is something which is actually impossible in the European Union, just to say that the firms running the railway companies could be nationalized, but you couldn't have an integrated transport system in which you controlled both the track and the firms operating um, the railways themselves, like like Amtrak, which is funny again, a reference to U.S. Yeah. politics that that yeah. Richard makes, which I thought was quite good. 
yeah that's right so um so i mean i think from certainly from richard's point of view um democratic nationhood and the capacity for people democratically to shape their conditions of life including the economy um that's the strong case that comes across um for um brexit a democrat i mean the basic question of popular self-rule um and mass democracy and i think that was always the case for um that was always the case the best kind of case for brexit was that it enhanced the capacity of people um both the vote itself in terms of the um the context within which it happened the referendum and the way in which it was experienced and what people thought they were voting for and also the gain of brexit even if it's you know even if it takes time to um to achieve is greater popular rule um and greater control political control for more people over the conditions of their life um and that is more possible in the conditions of de- of a democratic nation than it is in conditions of a member state of the European Union um and that is something mm. which i think has been vindicated um through the debate just a, a, a quick point on i guess richard's um particular left case for for brexit it's almost that he's you know as a as a political historian or a historian of political thought he knows all the debates that that happened in the in the 70s and 80s and it's sort of there's a bit of like why i think it's an interesting tone in some of the articles in the book and some of the risks where he's kind of seeing the response to his article in dissent the left case for brexit like why why are people treating the eu differently from all these other free trade agreements it doesn't like what is why can't people see what's really going on here these arguments long standing in the labor tradition why why are people not not reaching for them to try to um defend a specific uh, political line in this in this debate um and just guess quickly it's probably worth making the distinction um between brexit and lexit so i think often the left case for brexit is put in terms of this cursed word Lexit, which is essentially Brexit is good on the condition that it uh, leads to a Corbyn government or the great opportunities for for Corbyn um, or for radical Labour intervention. But I think and this is actually, you know, I think put very well, have to have to admit in a in a medium post by Phil um, that there's, you know, credit where credit's due. You know, I'm not afraid to give credit where it is due. That Brexit, that the left. Thank you for your for your kind generosity. That's really generous. And um, so yeah, and that the left case for Brexit doesn't inhere in the instrumental or possible um, positive political consequences, but that it is exactly all the things that you just said there, Phil. It's a removal of a constitutional framework that limits and reduces popular sovereignty, and that's what the left. is is about on, on one reading, um, at least. So yeah, to move on to the political question, why can I can I just did, say can I just say one, yeah. one thing about that as well? I mean, and and in I, I think maybe taking up some criticisms that I could imagine coming, um, and criticisms even that I've made as well. That that seems awfully arid. Yeah, removing constitutional constraints, blah 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 blah. Yeah, okay, but when do we get the good stuff that we care about, right? Um, and I think it's better to see Brexit than, you know, not as uh, something to be accomplished or now as a fait accompli, just, but rather as a, as a process, a, pro- a process of part of a wider democratizing politics 
um, which starts with the EU because that's the, the that's the first hurdle, I guess, that you have to cross. And also because that hurdle was there, you know, this is your this is your roads jump. Um, that that basically by a, a strange uh, strange confluence of events, you had this referendum on on Europe, which kind of happened in some sense by accident, a product of the Tory party's internal um, fissures. Um, which wasn't re which was never meant to actually lead to Brexit. It was a way of assuaging the Tory Brexiteers, but but there it was, and so there you have to fight that that fight that battle, and you fight that yeah. battle in the same terms that Marx described the mm. Chartists of supporting the free traders against the Tories, because then because of the the future struggles that that will allow for, um, and I think that's a, maybe a better way to put it for the, especially in the eyes of those who see discussions of you know removing constitutional constraints as a little bit. Um, too technical, maybe a bit abstract, and and not really related to the actual achievement of left wing goals. Well, I, guess I, I mean, a... I think it, it's a mis you know, I mean, that is a mistake on their part, I think, as well, um, precisely because so much of democratic life and so much of um, political life has been precisely neutered through the being um, being restricted by all the arid regulations and all the annexes of these vast free trade agreements which only um, only specialists and um, WTO lawyers and all the rest read. Um, and precisely for those reasons um, that it's um, attention I, needs to be drawn to. I, I, but yeah. I think what I'm getting at is that those aren't felt restraints, I think, in, 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 in people's lives in many cases. I mean, actually, it, it, for you know fishermen, it is because there's the fishing quotas. And for um, people who have strong anti-immigration sentiment, it's felt because they feel that, you know, why does the government have to defer to the EU when, we have to, when we want to restrict immigration, why can't we can't just do it? But for a lot of left-wing people, and this maybe is a reflection of the weakness of the left, the lack of its own project, that it doesn't feel those constraints. And so it's like, well, why are we bothering with this EU stuff? Let's just get going with the stuff that we can do, right? Try to win an election and try to um, implement yeah. some policies which roll That's back at least armed. neoliberalism. That's the armed wing of Oxfam view of politics, exactly that. Uh, I don't think it and is. I think I, I'm, not, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that that's entirely fair. I think there's a view that 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 it's not just, oh, this we want the state to be nice and caring, but that let's let's elect, you know, a Corbyn government in the, in the case, as he was leader of the Labour Party at the time, and have, you know, him increase taxes on the wealthy, redi redistribute income and whatever, all things that are possible within the EU. Why not just no, do that? that? And, and uh, look, I'm not... I'm not. I'm playing devil's advocate. I don't think that's. No, I know, but I mean, view, I think but... that was. But they that was the view. You know, they were. They promised um, broadband and Navara. The Navara wing of the movement of the Corbynist movement famously prom promised fully automated luxury communism. So they promised lots of material improvement. They were showering material improvement upon people that they took to be powerless and whose vote they didn't guarantee that they would respect. Um, so I mean, I don't. You know, I think the uh, the armed wing of Oxfam. Was exactly what happened, and but but, but, the, but I think steel steel manning it, steel manning it, right? Like taking the strongest version of their argument, not the weak version of their argument. No, but I'm um, not taking either. Political... I'm taking the version that was actually made in the election in 2019, and towards the end of the election campaign in 2019, um, it quickly began to dawn on them their internal polling that they were losing 
the red so-called red wall constituencies the old labor constituencies in the north and the midlands and owen jones started writing articles about how activists needed to go from the southeast up to those constituencies to make the case and that was the armed wing of oxfam if ever there was one that was you know the kind of go to um like humanitarians to um distant remote places to make the argument for why the Labour Party should deserve your vote. Um, it was entirely self-defeating and I think that that vision of politics um, was defeated in fact and so it's very much embedded in the left. So yeah just a just a quick point to wrap this up and maybe this is being too crude but Richard's left case for Brexit was written before the referendum and you know maybe you could have a bit more sympathy to some of those quote unquote the, the, arid um the, the, arid sorry just, just, before, just point of, point of clarification point of clarification you mean the left case for brexit the, the the start the initial essay yeah of the book yeah the initial essay 6th of june 2016 but once you'd had the referendum the left case for brexit is there was a vote we should defend that vote because that's the only fucking power that we've got so I think, you know, I do have some, there are some points around this kind of, you know, constitutionalizing. It's not the the snappiest, sexiest stuff. But um, that was one thing that's obviously, you know, stuck with me was the willingness to throw, to throw the democratic vote out with the bathwater or whatever. But yeah, just um, maybe to kind of, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you know what I mean. Um, you go back to cakes. We were on firmer ground then. Yeah. And you should throw out bathwater, by the way. I mean, you shouldn't just retain it. Yeah, the do demo, you... you don't want to throw out the democratic baby with the bathwater. That was what you meant. You yeah. don't want to throw out the baby. That's right. Yeah. No, you, you definitely don't. I mean, that's that would be, and I'm not, I, I, be bad. I, I, I'm not yeah. sure if we're on firm ground with who's, cakes because cakes are soft. Who's, who are you calling democratic babies? That's that's that's, that's infantilizing the which is exactly terrible stuff. So, okay, just to maybe. Um, you know, just a, a final question here, and we've touched on this a, a little anyway. You know, why why was this not more widely received, or maybe actually to put a bit of a finer point on it? You know, what lessons, if any, will the left learn from Brexit? Was it wrong to be pro Brexit, or is it wrong to be on the left? It's a good question. So I think Richard, from conversations with him. Um, around the full Brexit. So full disclosure that um, George and I were part of the full Brexit with Richard, just in case um, that had been lost on some of our listeners, perhaps you've got some new listeners. Um, but anyway, um, Richard is fairly optimistic because he sees it simply as the, the greatest space that is open for um, for democratic intervention, particularly in economic life in the wake of Brexit, means that um, it can work spontaneously through the self-interest of politicians, that politicians who want to get elected will um, simply start making promises and pulling kind of saying, you know, uh, seeking to pull levers of state power that um, they had no interest or incentive to do so before. So I think at least over the medium to long run, he's fairly optimistic about the um, the um, the lessons that will be learned in the sense that there simply is uh, tactical electoral advantage in um, in the aftermath of Brexit. And some of that, I think, is already being evident in the kinds of economic promises that the Tories are trying to, to make to keep their um, constituencies, if, to keep their lock on the new constituencies that they won from the Labour Party in 2019. So Richard's fairly optimistic. I think I'm quite pessimistic. Um, 
or more. Sometimes I listen to some of the, you know, the post left um, podcasts and think, yeah, I, I completely agree. My experience of trying to organize events um, around Brexit, people who would self-identify more on the left were, were not very sympathetic to these arguments around democracy and popular sovereignty. And it could obviously have been due to the very real limitations in my ability to make these arguments, but it it didn't seem like there was that, um, I don't know, that orientation that I would kind of agree with in terms of being fundamentally in, in favour of, of democracy. So I don't know. I mean, the, the most pessimistic um, projection or, or kind of prediction that I would have is that the left kind of learns the lesson and I've made this point a number of times that majorities aren't required they aren't good in fact it's better to be part of a moral minority you can you can sell your politics in a lot better that way so I think there's a lot to be you know I'm not doom pilled or whatever the pill is that makes you bad or or negative um but I just I think it's I think we're undergoing a realignment in British politics and in uh, more widely as well so I don't think you know, these things aren't taken for granted. You're not doom pilled, George, you're bunger pilled. And those are the pills that we sell to everyone. Yeah, but those pills are different pills. If you say bunger pilled, you'd, you're not going to be making very coherent political analysis, um, particularly if you, I don't know, double Why not? drop, listen to two episodes. My, and, well, no, that's, uh, my bunger pills, my, my bunger pills, like they give you great analysis. So yeah, it makes things. me intellectually erect. That's what uh, we sell. Anyway, so <laughs> to, to respond to, to one thing which occurs to me about, um, there's a kind of correlate, an analogy to be made with debate over free speech. And left-wing opponents of free speech are the most execrable, worst people in, in politics. I think it's, it's, a, it's a completely, I, I can always try to see, uh, you know, try to see an argument in, in its best light, but left-wing opponents of free speech are the worst. And they're the worst because they can't possibly imagine that they would ever come across restrictions on their own speech. Their ambitions are so low, they have so little to say that might be in any way outside the mainstream or challenging to power that they can't imagine that there could any be, be any real problem with restrictions on free speech and that they're deluded in thinking that those restrictions actually work for them. And there's a sort of homology with the Brexit case, less strong, um, and I don't see left-wing remainers in the same light as I would see left-wing anti-free speechers. But the homology is this, that they also have such uh, limited ambitions that they don't imagine that the restrictions that the EU imposes on sovereign democratic politics could ever really affect them. Um, that that it's just something that we have to live with. We live with those constraints and we try to make do in our little space, that, that in the little space of politics that, al- that is allowed in, in the 21st century at, at the, in the end of history. So I think that is maybe uh, an interesting way to see it that it's the lack of ambition and the lack of lack of drive, lack of larger political goals, um, which prevents maybe some left-wing people from seeing the, the the severe restrictions that membership of the EU imposes. Yeah, I mean that could be um, one way to put it. I guess the the reality is okay or, the, or disagree. You know, if you do. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I was trying to segue into a different, a point on a completely different subject. Um, but I think, the, the, yeah, free, I, I think my, my politics have become way more 
blunter and less subtle and cruder. Um, Brexit, good. Free speech, good. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't want maybe, to take on... Maybe you've just become more left-wing, George. Is that possible? So left-wing, I'm right-wing now. Or maybe. Oh, Who yeah. knows? Um, um, no, so I think there's just the... You know, the, as for all the kind of the strength of the analysis in this book, it is worth saying that the the detraction achieved by Richard's analysis, by the full Brexit, you know, was not what you might have, have thought it could be. So there's a big question as to, you know, I want to talk about success and failure, but in terms of having political goals and then achieving them, you know, what 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 were those goals and were they were they achieved and what's the legacy of that of that project gonna be? All good questions but yeah final word to, to either of either of you guys do you want to throw in an, an, a new a new idea nothing new i suppose i'm fairly pessimistic as well i think about the um if uh, any what lessons will be learned i can't see that they're percolating particularly at the moment um and um i guess we'll see about richard's point about the electoral advantage that now lies in a Britain that has left the European Union, how far politicians take advantage of that and how far it's related to greater autonomy that we have outside of the European Union, we'll have to see. I tend to be more pessimistic um, than Richard is on that question. Um, just to round this off, I mean, it might be useful if uh, either of you could explain what is the quality of Brexit, which is to say, you know, what is what is the nature of the Brexit that's actually happened? Um, and does that differ from the Brexit that you had in mind? Um, I think the situation is a lot muddier. I mean, it certainly has an example to use and a lesson to learn. We've discussed Syriza and the the, the drama of, of 2015 in Greece. And I think that's a much more dramatic case. It's a sexier case. There was so much more at, at evident risk um, in Greece's situation because of its dire economic straits, which don't apply to the British case, which make it maybe a less sexy case, but I don't think it's one where um, there aren't lessons to draw from. I mean, you know, I, we know I think we were we very know, clear. We, we, were, we know sexy enough for you, Alex. No, well, because no, like, Britain's uh, never, Britain's never been sexy. That's, you're a Brazilian, you're a Brazilian and we're not sexy enough for Br- you, but Greeks Br- Br- are. No, we have, yeah, well, Why are you I mean, so... yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but also, um, no, but also because there was, there was so much a, there was more evidently at stake there in terms of the immediate material realities um, of, of leaving the EU, of crashing out of the EU in the way that the Brexit case doesn't seem to be. But I think, you know, as, a, as we made the case in the post-UK election 2019 episode, that it was a huge missed opportunity from the point of view of the Labour Party, of Corbynism, to, to not have fully backed uh, to not have fully backed Brexit, um, to have shied away from it, because they could have been instead leading a government and being able to enact many of its uh, more radical reforms. And I think yeah. that's a lesson to draw. And, and if you think, you know, if you support those sorts of politics, if you support Corbynism, they fucked up and they lost because they failed to back Brexit. And in a way that that defeat was entirely deserved because of that. So just to touch on the point about you know what is the nature of of this of the Brexit that we did get? I think it's worth saying it's not the full Brexit. Um, and don't worry, I'm not gonna. This isn't some rallying cry. I think the reality is that Britain will still act like a member state of the EU. The process of detaching um, Britain from this from this organisation will be a long and um, complicated one. 
And what, you know, the argument was always that Brexit is an, a, an opportunity for popular sovereignty, greater democracy, economic renewal. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's a process. So it's not a straightforward, you know, tick that off the list. We've got socialism tomorrow or communism or anything good. It's, it's still the conditions of um member statehood still largely pertain there is a, a void of representative politics brexit doesn't just paper over that um there is a whole a, we're in a condition of a mass demobilization of the public in in condition of lockdown um you know there's there is a long way still to go so the quality of of brexit is you know is a reflection in part of the political circumstances that that produced both the referendum and the the um, debate afterwards and this is one where the British left is very very weak if it you know exists at all and has a bit of a um, ambivalent relationship to, to democracy so that's that's where we're at at the moment but as you said this is you know this is roads so we can we can jump around here <laughs> um, I mean, Phil, sorry, just to jump in. I mean, is there anything you want to say in terms of what the actual deal is? I think our listeners might not be aware of it. I'm not fully aware of, and we don't need the, the total ins and outs, but I mean, what, where it is the Britain's position at, with regard to the EU and, with the, and in reference to all the discussion we've had about constitutionalization, where does this leave Britain? Does it, how, what, how much more freedom of maneuver does it have? So it's an interesting question, and I think it's still open to, um, we'll have to wait and see. Um, there is a deal on, we're in a no-tariff um, uh, trade deal, with. so there is a deal on goods um, between the European Union and um, and Britain. There is no deal on services yet, that's still to be determined, and the precise mechanism by which the deal is overseen, the various um, uh bilateral bodies effectively for overseeing nature of the relationship, all of um, that, how they will work and how much um, British governments of the future will um, seize the advantage in those future negotiations with the European Union in these various um, kind of technical bodies for overseeing the future relationship. That is yet to be seen. Um, And We'll, um, it's probably best if we include if we'll include a link to some of the reading, which will give listeners um, a better breakdown of some of those of some of the more the detailed aspects of the deal. Yeah, I think that's yeah the the, the piece on on the full Brexit website is very long and detailed. But I think to make a more kind of polemical point, um, one thing to bear in mind is that the it does reduce the the room to hide that our politicians now have so going forward whatever the nature of the post the post brexit settlement will be the you know it's increasingly the responsibility of our representatives to do that so that's a that sort of accountability is um is an important aspect of it of it all okay very good um should we leave it there um I think the one thing we should highlight is our next reading club, which is uh, 
will be recorded at the end of February, Thursday, the 24th of February, and it'll be on Deleuze's postscript uh, on the societies of control, which is very apposite in light of Western states' reflexive, and not just Western states, of course, because China started it, uh, reflexive uh, lockdowns um, and uh, attempt to effectively control societies um, instead of actually trying to resolve the problems of the pandemic. So that's what we've got coming up in a month. It's actually a short reading, um, so plenty of time to get through that. Uh, I can't remember how long, but you know, it's maybe 10 pages at the most. Um, and do send in your questions, uh, comments, points, uh, shout at us if you want to, whatever. Um, so that'll be up uh, in a month. And uh, well, that's it for now. Uh, we will be also announcing, we already did, but we're going to be announcing them again, all the readings for the next well, basically for the rest of the year. Um, so you can get uh, planning, you can get reading um, and plan your time around that. Thank you for listening. Catch you later. Bye-bye. <music>